Hello and welcome to Crackle Comics Weekly, episode 17, June 2010, Retro Week. It's our final Retro Week, and it's our final show for the month of April, even though it's, today is May 1st. I am Mike, alongside. I am Vincent, and welcome to the show. Now we'll get into our retro books from June 2010, and we're going in alphabetical this week, as we often do, and starting out with Batgirl number nine. Written by Brian Q. Miller, art by Lee Garbett. This cover, I, is, I think, is definitely worth noting out because as far as I'm concerned, this is basically the definitive image for Stephanie Brown as Batgirl within this era because it's just it's just the most like one of the most I mean there's one other that kind of rivals it but it's the most striking cover of this run which is only like 24 issues long and it's an early art germ piece before he you know truly became the top artist in the industry like within the past couple of years so the story here we're you know we're nine issues into this run so there's a guy with bombs strapped to his chest on public transit Steph is running over to deal with it with Barbara Gordon Oracle on the intercom and they refer to themselves as team Batgirl, which is interesting because Barbara, as we saw in no man's land, which you can search around the web, uh, find that Mike and I and others did a podcast going through no man's land. That's the era of Batman that introduced Cassandra Kane and set her up as Batgirl. And she's set up as a kind of similar relationship with Barbara. And I believe there's some of that even in her series, but not to this extent. And it makes more sense here because Steph, you know, she's new to Batgirl, but it's not like she's a new introduction and then she became Batgirl immediately. She's been spoiler and she's been in the Batman books and had a loose connection with all these characters, especially Tim Drake as, as Robin, going back to the early, early 90s. So them being team Batgirl, it, it works a lot better than Babs and Cass. And ultimately, this really is a shared book, which is pretty interesting. There's a lot of Barbara Gordon in here. And... I don't know. I don't remember if it's Babs or Steph, but they call this public transit vehicle a tram, which I don't think is really accurate. It's obviously not really a subway because it's not underground. It's on an it's on an elevated line, so I would call it an elevator rail or an L. That would be the nickname in most places. But that whole sequence was just a cold open, cool superhero scene, and then the cal the the main plot here as it develops and ultimately leading to the final page tease is that the calculator is using nanites to infect people and it kind of turns them into zombie thralls and then they kill themselves. And he's got a feud with Oracle, which goes back, I mean, it hinges a lot on continuity. It goes back to Birds of Prey arcs from like half a decade before this issue. And it's also following up on plot points from or the miniseries Oracle The Cure because Calculator's daughter, I think her name's, yeah, Wendy, She's currently in the supporting cast. And eventually, like towards the very end of the series, she essentially becomes Oracle's sidekick because she's also a uh, disabled uh, woman and she's got kind of a connection to this world. And overall, I like this book. Steph's got a fun personality. Um, this was kind of one of those hidden gem runs because it didn't last nearly as long as Cass's run as Batgirl. And then they both got uh, swept under the rug for Babs to come back. And obviously Babs also has the retro era. And for a long time also, these the collections of this were super hard to find. And then very recently they've re remedied that. It's a fun book. The supporting cast around is really solid. There's also kind of a, a Gordon type character named Nick Gage, who had, I think he even goes on dates with Barbara uh, in the run. 
So it, it is a shared book and there's lots of personality for all the characters and the, uh, the art's pretty decent from Lee Garbutt. Yeah. It, I mean, to me, it's very plain. I, there's not much of a striking style to it. It's, um, it's not bad. It's not great. It's, it's kind of what the DC kind of normal style was at that time in 2010. Interesting to note, I was buying single issues physically at this time in 2010. I would have been sophomore in high school. Yeah. No, maybe a freshman somewhere in there. Um, but, uh, I remember this book. I wasn't reading it at the time, but I always heard good things about it and happy to know that you can get it easily now, but it was, it was a good issue. It's, I, I didn't know that Oracle was really heavily involved with it. And then seeing calculator again was uh, kind of a highlight because you, you hit on the rivalry, but yeah, it was, it's a solid, solid book. Moving on to black Panther, Captain America flags of our fathers. Number one, written by Reginald Hudlin and art here by Dennis Cowan. And who I believe is forget who broke the news, but he's in the hospital this week. So we wish him a speedy recovery. We don't know what it's from, but I, I, I can't remember who on Twitter broke the news that said he was in the hospital, but hopefully he's able to get better soon. And opening of this focuses on Gabriel Jones, one of the members of Nick Fury's Howling Commandos, and they're pinned down um, in a firefight. They're outnumbered two to one, uh, trying to take down the Nazi international uh, missile system. And they're saved by a kind of first appearing Captain America. And this book is now stating that this is the first meeting between the Howling Commandos and Captain America. If you look back in continuity, this may not be correct. They possibly may have met all the way earlier back in like early 1941. Um, and some books indicate that Nick Fury met Steve Rogers even before he was Captain America. So uh, pick and choose which one you want to go with. Um, it's one of those constantly changing things, but I will note that Captain America in his, is in his like original costume. So the mask doesn't connect back. So he's got the kind of exposed skin on the collar and and on the back of his neck, and he's got the triangle shield. Art here is beautiful by Dennis Cowan. Uh, just great flow and uh, action choreography is great with it. And especially like the scenes with the Nazis' heads on their pikes later is, oh, it's beautiful um, and like very haunting and scary. But uh, Captain America is able to save the Howling Commandos, and he kind of hangs out with them for a bit. Back in Nazi Germany, we have Baron Strucker informing Adolf Hitler that uh, they've been set back on their missile systems, but they can maybe speed it back up by obtaining this rare metal called vibranium from Wakanda. And Nazis thinking that Wakanda being a very small, closed-off nation, they'll be able to just go in there very quickly. U.S. intelligence informs the Howling Commandos that the Nazis are going to Wakanda to try to obtain this metal, and the Cap and the Howling Commandos try to go and stop it. When they get there, they find that the Nazis already tried to go in there, and they find a bunch of Nazis' heads on pikes as kind of a warning side for no one else to join. Cap goes on ahead and meets Black Panther for the first time. Now, this is not T'Chaka or T'Challa. This is probably someone before them, as you know, sliding time scales would indicate that. And Cap and Black Panther kind of talk it out. And uh, Cap wants to see if he can get inside the borders, but they're not going to open it. So Cap and Black Panther have a fight, and the Howling Commandos also get captured as they're watching uh, Captain America. Uh, so they get captured. That's the kind of end with them. And then the ending of the issue is... Baron Strucker being informed that Red Skull is going to be overseeing the rest of the, the Nazis' mission here. It was pretty good. This is really fun. Uh, I, I know this series more so for kind of the striking covers of Black Panther and an original-looking Captain America teaming up. Uh, but this is really fun. I, I'll probably check out the rest of this. Vince, what did you think? Yeah, so I read 
bits and pieces of the Reginald Hudlin Black Panther run back when they were coming out. And obviously this is a lot further. And this loosely picks up on stuff from the very beginning of his run because the first arc, which had art by, first arc in, in the main series had art by John Romita Jr. And there were a bit of flashbacks to this essentially. And so this ties into that and it's kind of like a companion piece. And basically those two parts of the entire pretty lengthy run, which Marvel has split into like three thick paperbacks, these two parts, so like 10 issues total, these are the standouts to me. I really enjoy this, at least this first issue. The way I want to describe it is that the art is not really pleasing to the eye, like in a kind of like warm and fuzzy, kind of like a what you would expect from like a Darwin Cook or Doc Shainer kind of book, but it looks fantastic, if that makes any sense. And a lot of that, I mean, Dennis Cowan and the inks by Klaus Janssen are I mean, they're top of their class, but I'm also going to give a lot of credit to the coloring by Pete Pantazis, I believe. I don't know how to say the last name, but there's interesting coloring choices where you kind of certain scenes that you have very muted colors, except for the characters or except for some element. So it'll almost look like the background's black and white, but you'll see like the commandos skin colors and their cost and their uniforms and stuff. And I think it's interesting that this book also kind of on you touched on some of the continuity and retcon this is one of the books that acknowledges and leans into the fact that in world war ii the army was not integrated but gabe served with the howling commandos and you know stan and kurt stan and jack or i don't know that they necessarily at least initially explained it they're just like hey we're writing these in the 60s where you know racial relations are a little a little bit better. So we're just going to put a black guy in the Howling Commandos and not acknowledge it. But as you go forward, it's like, yeah, it, there is a way to acknowledge it and, and make it a pretty interesting angle. Yeah, it looks fantastic. There's there's parts where it looks like it's a watercolor too, almost. It looks really, really cool. Yeah. Black Widow number one, written by Marjorie Liu and art by Daniel Acuna. Depending on how you count, this is Black Widow volume four, five, or six. They often put subtitles on it and then the Marvel wikis and stuff like that don't count them. And there were even solo runs before that in like uh, anthology titles. But I believe this is touted as the first ongoing and it makes sense because this is around the release of Iron Man 2 in 2010. Even though this ongoing only lasts eight issues in two arcs. Uh, ultimately by different creative teams. And she gets a more proper try in a couple of years with the Edmondson Noto title around Marvel now, which goes for 20 issues, which I think is the, the current Black Widow record. We'll see if Kelly Thompson can break it. Here in this issue, she gets a, uh, Natasha receives a mysterious black rose in an envelope. So she meets up with a, a fellow former spy who goes by the name Black Rose, but he has no idea what's going on. She doesn't know what's going on. Then she gets attacked and drugged by an old lady and a mysterious person. And I guess like the old lady attacks her, but then the mysterious person who's working with the old lady also kills the old lady in the process. And she's recovered. It looks like just straight up by medical personnel, but then uh, basically becomes under the, under the eye of uh, Bucky, who at this point is back and in the US and he's a winter soldier, Tony Stark and Logan. And they chat you know, confused on what's going on while she's being operated on. But because she was drugged, they can't really use anesthesia, but they think that the drug, you know, has her out in place of anesthesia, but not at all. So it's kind of like this 
it's supposed to be this badass thing where she's sitting there and is like technically fully conscious, but she can't speak or anything like that while she's being operated on. Like they have her entire like chest cavity open and are poking around her organs. And they're like, hey, before we seal her up, did you double check that she still has her spleen? And I don't really understand this part. Like I, I guess she gets gut, like she gets slashed. So that's why they have to at least, you know, check if something's wrong and maybe they have to do something to deal with the poison and then seal her back up. But like, they're like looking for something and she's also doesn't want them to poke around much. It's not really clear, but I don't know if there's something that should be clear. And we get flashbacks to shortly before this where she's on a date with, with Bucky. So this is a decent companion if you just picked up this one trade to the Winter Soldier run by Ed Brubaker, which deals in that relationship a bit, even though that actually was published a year or two or more after this. And then Logan runs out to find the mystery guy and he finds him, but then just leaves him alone because the mystery guy's like, if you kill me, like it's just going to get worse for her. And so he just walks away and that's where it ends. So, and, it, and it's not even teased like the identity. So Natasha's, once she's sealed back up and wakes up, that's going to be her, her hunt. And uh, I mentioned how in the beginning there was a black rose and this other spy was rose related. So the, the name of this arc is called the name of the rose. And then there's also a backup in this issue, which it's essentially they use it as an excuse to do a Black Widow saga thing, which is a thing that Marvel has done through the years, where it's basically like a wiki with collage artwork to go through the history of the character. So the main thing I want to point out here is her retcon origins and history, which I often forget was a thing because this includes how she has an extensive history with Logan, which we know a little bit of that from Uncanny X-Men number 268, which is the famous Chris Claremont, Jim Lee issue with the two of them and also Captain America during World War II. But Daniel Way slash Marvel editorial slash whoever took that issue and decided, let's really dig into that in the awful Onion series Wolverine Origins. So like Logan partially trained a teenage Natasha Romanov as like a vagabond in Russia for a little bit. And I kind of totally forgot about that and I hate it. But the main story here, it's pretty good spy action. In Brave and the Bold, number 33, it's J. Michael Straczynski and Cliff Chang. JMS was put on this book for like, I think he had like eight issues or so as a kind of a filler for him before he took over uh, Superman and Wonder Woman. And then, of course, when he did that, it kind of all was sidetracked because the New 52 happened and editorial interfered with him again. But if you... I think his whole Brave and the Bold run is contained in a, in a trade. You should pick it up because it's really, really fun and good. And this is one of the st more standout issues. Zatanna is awoken in the middle of the night from a dream that upsets her. And she tracks down Wonder Woman dispatching a terror attack and says it's time for a much overdue girl's night out. And Diane agrees and they go to recruit Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, who is reluctant at first but agrees as she can't remember the time she wasn't either at the library or on patrol as Batgirl. At definitely at a time when she was still a as, as a librarian, I think, in Gotham City. And Zatanna uses her magic to get the women to bypass the line at the club, and they have a great time. They take the dance floor. Uh, Wonder Woman breaks a guy's phone who's trying to hit on her. It was pretty funny. And uh, Barbara goes to the bathroom and notices Wonder Woman's in a crying to each other, but like moves on. She doesn't know what's fully going on. Um, they say that they're just having a moment. And then later at, like, probably like would have been like a 4.30 in the morning, 5 like a diner they're talking having like early breakfast um and diana talks to babs about how about the oracle of delphi and that 
what the Oracle's role within their society, um, and if Barbara understands that. And the ending uh, flashes back to the bathroom conversation with uh, Wonder Woman and Zatanna as they wanted to give Babs a night to remember uh, dancing as her vision was the killing joke taking place. Um, she doesn't know when it was gonna happen, but she knows it's, it's going to happen. So Zatanna wanted to give Barbara Gordon an, a memory of dancing so she could remember how, when she had the use of her legs. Um, and it's like intercut with uh, the beginning of the killing joke happening. And it ends with uh, Barbara waking up as Oracle getting a distress call saying that she was waking up from her favorite dream, which was the, the girl's night out. This is a really, really good issue. Cliff Chang's art is really, really good. He draws a great Wonder Woman. Uh, I know Vince is going to talk about it a little bit more, but Cliff Chang would later be with Brian Azzarello when the new 52 starts to draw Wonder Woman. But this is a much more, you know, kind of original looking Wonder Woman and not the, the redesign that we later get. But everyone looks fantastic here. Zatanna looks great. Batgirl looks great. Um, just It's just an overall kind of good issue. I know it messes with continuity a little bit, but it's one of those things of, you know, eh, sliding timescales, how long... Eh, forget about it because you know it's it's one of those throwaway brave and the bold issues that are just like kind of fun yeah this is a strong issue i i've read it before jms basically all of his are kind of good standalones if i recall correctly the earlier chunk of this series was this kind of strange mark wade kind of like meta storyline where it would be one storyline but each issue would be totally different team-ups and everything and loosely connected but yeah it, it's cool to see cliff chang drawing a more traditional on model wonder woman which he doesn't get to do you know when he actually takes over the book and it's also a different characterization because the wonder woman after this is it's the whole like war goddess gimmick and brian azarello and then also jms has his own wonder woman run like just a couple months after this which it's a little bit more in line with her character, but obviously he also significantly changes her look. When he gave her chance and everyone got angry. Yeah. And then I, I think the issue is great, but I was slightly confused on the structure. Like I questioned, I don't think this is the case. And honestly, you going through it, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. But you could read this accidentally as implying that this girl's night out was the night before the killing joke. Or like right before it but i think it's just supposed to be like an indeterminate point and then the further content like sliding time scale comments which you don't i feel like you don't see dc make these it's not necessarily a mistake but you don't see dc do this as often like if they do a flashback story i feel they usually try and avoid topical references whereas marvel you'll often get like god damn it here's you know tony stark in 1964 with an iphone but in this issue, you do have iPhones. You have the, yeah. the women singing single ladies at karaoke. There is a fun Star Wars joke, sort of, depending on your taste. And the, also the like bathroom thing when, when Babs walks in on them in the bathroom, it's written like it's initially supposed to be like a hee-hee lesbians. And that's a little bit dated, but obviously later in the issue, you realize that it's not that at all. But at first, it's, it's kind of angled as that kind of joke. Not a joke, but like that. If it was, I, I didn't key into that at all. I kind of figured that that, but maybe okay. that's because they know what happens in the issue. Yeah, yeah, especially, yeah, if you know what's going to happen, it makes sense. But I think, well, I think it's that, yeah, if you read it again, it's definitely presented as like Babs thinks she's walking in on them, like kissing because they're drunk or something. I, that's how I read it, for sure. But yeah, it's a, it's a great standalone issue. And I think actually Barbara Gordon fans, especially like, this is one of the single issues that you need to track down, especially since, you know, 
pre, you know, outside of Birds of Prey and outside of New 52, you know, reboot and everything, you, there are, you, you do have to jump around for the spotlight Batgirl stories. And this is definitely one of them. Speaking of spotlight stories, it's brightest day number zero, the kickoff to the sequel to Blackest Night, I guess. It, it, Blackest Night ended with 12 characters being selected to come back from the dead. And this was a bi-monthly series chronicling their adventures then eventually would lead into uh, singles books for them. But as you know, that's not exactly how that all worked out because the new 52 happened and, you know, things got delayed and moved around. But this is Jeff Johns, Pete Tomasi, Fernando Pacerin. Was Fernando Pacerin the only artist on this? I feel like he wasn't, but this was like multiple, one of those multiple combined ventures. But so the conclusion to DC's Vent Blackest Night, 12 heroes and villains were brought back to life and we get uh, Boston brand Deadman as our kind of guide through all of this as he's been selected to be the ring bearer of the White Power Ring, which uh, that's what, that was a big thing at the end of Blackest Night. The We had the Black Lantern Rings and then we got the White Ring, which Black Ring brings, de brings death, White Ring brings life. So he's going to be the torchbearer for this. Um, so... This whole issue is basically him checking in on all the characters that have been resurrected and kind of setting up what's going to happen. So Deadman's trying to figure out what his purpose is now because he doesn't have his power since he's alive now, but he's got power ring. And uh, Aquaman's back from the dead with Mara. They're at Amnesty Bay, but he still kind of has visions of his zombie Black Lantern self. Hawk and Dove are in this, and Hawk's being like super violent as, as he's going through a thing. Maxwell Lord's trying to resurrect himself or give, get his powers back somehow. So it looks like he kills himself in this right issue, but he doesn't. Um, Martian Manhunter uh, is back, and he's hanging out with, uh, I think it's John Stewart and, and Guy Gardner, um, and he makes kind of a new emblem for himself out of uh, the rocks on Mars. Um, and he strictly says that he's the last Martian now. Um, I can't remember if Miss Martian died during Black Slate or not, but here we are. A lot of this is going to be me rambling, because it's kind of just a snapshot. Uh, Hawk Hawkgirl and Hawkman are trying to figure out the the mystery behind of the their cursed ritual of they always die and come back to life when their first bodies have been found. So they're gonna they're investigating that. And then uh, Osiris is back alive and kind of being seen as a godlike creature. Reason and Jade's back and hanging out with Kyle Rayner and uh, his his girlfriend Natu, uh, trying to figure out what his powers are. And then last is uh, Jason Rush Firestorm. Uh, merges with Rodney Raymond uh, and at the funeral of Jason's girlfriend who was killed during Blackest Night. This is good. Um, we get to see the white power battery appear in Silver City, New Mexico at the end, and uh, Sinestro shows up to get it. The Brightest Day banner would be kind of put on a lot of the books at this time. I know Flash had it. Green Lantern had it. I want to say Justice League Generation Lost was one of these Brightest Day books. And I yeah. know, uh, and then Green Arrow was as well because the Star City gets an act giant forest that looks like a star. So that's like this is all just kind of setting up what's going to happen. Also, Captain Boomerang's back well too when we see Barry Allen visit him. This is good, but I remember getting on the ride for this because at, at this point, Jeff Johns was the the guy at DC, so everything that he was writing, uh, you, were, you had to kind of had to follow it, but. I remember this. I, I, I number one. I never finished it. I think I got like five or six issues in. And I was like, eh, I'm just gonna read it when it's collected. And then I think it kind of gets muddled and mixed around. And then I it, it leads to 
John Constantine and Swamp Thing rejoining the DCU. That was the big thing, I think, that spun out of this. And then it doesn't matter because the new 52 happens. I think that's a lot of the things Vince and I might be talking about with the DC books is like, we remember where things were going to go trajectory wise, but then they kind of got the rug pulled out from all of them because, you know, new 52 happens. But like after this, we were supposed to get the Aquaman book by Jeff Johns, which we got in the new 52, but this was kind of the lead into that. But, you know, some things get changed around. It, I mean, it's good. It, it's kind of just like this time capsule of what was going to be. Um, and then kind of, you know, it's one of those things. It's a bi-monthly book that's 24 issues long and it kind of loses steam. I always think maybe it should have just been 12 issues. But uh, to this day, I've never finished it. Yeah, I, I double checked and I'm pretty sure Passerin is in this whole issue. And it is a, it is an extra length issue. But as it goes on, you have kind of a round table. You have people like, uh, I don't remember who else, like Ivan Reese mostly um, and Passerin and others like that. But yeah, I think technically you you, you question the Miss Martian thing. I think that's kind of a loophole because she's a white Martian. Spoilers. That's right. I mean, she's that, from Mars, though. But yeah, yeah. Right. He, he says something. He there's a few moments where he he uses the word green, but she actually shows up in this series later. But the one for whatever reason, like a few things stood out to me. Mara and Aquaman, like their sequence, they skinny dip, and then also Hawkman <laughs> and Hawk Girl, which I'll get to in a second. Also, like it's not like you see anything, but they clearly have sex. Like that's the whole thing about their segment at first. Yeah. And it just made me think like, like, you know, I mean, you could, and I'm, I'm not even necessarily saying that it's inappropriate, but you're not going to necessarily hand this to an eight-year-old or like an eight-year-old's parent is probably going to be iffy about that, let alone Blackest Night, which directly preceded this and was a giant event about death and zombies and people reanimate their dead loved ones being reanimated and, and eating each other and shit like that. And it just makes, I don't know, it makes me like, it triggered like a question of like, the ethos of DC in the modern age and the ethos of the Jeff Johns era and him as a writer, because on one side, a lot of Jeff Johns, it's all about nostalgia. And that's what brightest day is. It's like, let's resurrect all these characters, these classic characters, like let's reunite. Let me close to, I mean, really it's going back to the eighties version of Hawk and Dove, not like the 60s Steve Ditko, but you know, let's reunite Hawk and Dove and, you know, gloss over the fact that Hawk became like a crazy villain and stupid events and things like that. You know, let's, let's bring back a lot of other, these other characters, reunite Aquaman and Mera, everything like that. His, his hand is fixed, all kinds of aspects like that. But at the same time, it's like, it is very much like a comics aren't for kids thing. So it's, I don't think Jeff Johns is writing for his eight-year-old self. He's writing for his four-year-old self but with the characters and status quo of his eight-year-old self, but with maturity. Right. And I mean, I, mean can... I will say that in terms of Mara, though, like this is kind of what, when the big, like let's put over Mara really, really hard came. So like, she's awesome in Blackest Night. And then she's since then kind of been a big staple, even getting the point where she got her own miniseries and then was like, she's part of the Justice League now. So that, it was kind of fun to look back. It was like, yeah, this is the part where they were really kind of pushing Mara. Yeah. Well, I think they kind of, that that was really there for a lot of the Silver Age as well, because remember they get married like very early on to the ongoing series, which granted there's a ton of Aquaman before the ongoing series, and then she gets like pregnant like the issue after they get married or something, and immediately delivers the baby. So Silver Age Aquaman was very much a, like a 
Aquaman family book. And then obviously you have Death of a Prince and everything like that. But I feel like really it is like that post-crisis era where you have the Peter David run and, and the dolphin relationship and everything like that, where it, there's always tension and on the rocks with Mira. But then, yeah, the, I want to highlight in a similar note, some of the Hawkman thing stood out to me. I'm kind of a Hawkman fan for better or worse. And that continuity is very weird because Jeff Johns kind of sort of brought back Hawk, Hawkman. Technically, I don't think he was actually on the book yet um, in JSA, but then he launched the Hawkman solo series with James Robinson. And this followed like half a decade or more of the character being considered like toxic and untouchable to the point where DC did not allow Grant Morrison to bring him back. And in the process, he created a new version of Hawkgirl that was Kendra Saunders, who was similar to the t to the DCAU TV show thing where it's like they have this shared history, they have this reincarnation thing, but like not really. Like she's not like fully in, like in tune with those memories and she doesn't really like Carter. She's like, you're kind of weird. But she dies. Yeah, she dies in Black as Night, I believe. And they both die in Black yeah, yeah, they both die. And and there's actually a moment where they like finally decide like, oh, we're cool with each other. But then they die. It, it's the same, like within the same page, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then what happens is when they're resurrected is that, okay, Hawkgirl's back, but it's just Shira. It's just like the old version of Hawkgirl. And Kendra's seemingly like dead for good and purged from the body, purged from Hawkgirl and gets to stay dead and, and not you know, be a superhero. So why is she called Hawkgirl? She should be called Hawkwoman as she was in the 80s and 90s for like over a decade. Um, it's kind of strange. And then now post-New 52, because again, the reboot, eventually they brought in Hawkgirl, but then they want the other Hawkgirl in the Hawkman book. Hawkman's confusing. And Hawkgirl yeah. is a confusing part of Hawkman. The Dead Man exposition is kind of, it's just kind of there. It, it, it pulls holds your hand through the whole thing. There's some positive status quo stuff because none of these characters should have died in the first place. <laughs> but like, it's still like kind of an edgy thing. And then as you said over and over, like a reboot is a year after this and like a couple months after this overlong thing is finished. And so we, wow. didn't, we basically spent like an entire year, uh, 24 issues, double publishing to fully establish the renewed status quos and then it's like pull the plug and a lot of these characters and a lot of these status quos were could be in a really interesting place um obviously at the very end of the series that sets up things with constantine and swamp thing and reintegrating kind of that vertigo corner back into the mainline dc universe you mentioned a lot with aquaman and then hawk and dove which I don't know if it would have taken the same turn if there wasn't a reboot, but it definitely takes a weird turn with the reboot. Um, pulling in Rob Liefeld, Firestorm is an in interesting place. And like technically these stories kind of continue, but not at all. It's, it's, like, it's like, here's the next book, but then you rewrite the entire next book. I don't know. It's, it's well, what, what, is very strange. Yeah. I, I forgot that the, the tease for a certain event is at the end of the first issue. I thought it was a little bit later on, but no. We'll get there when we get there on that one. But uh, Daredevil number 506, Andy Diggo, Marco Cicchetto, who 10 years ago was drawing Daredevil, was drawing Daredevil and, you know, 10 years later, <laughs> is drawing Daredevil. Um, 
Matt Murdock is the leader at the hand. So spoilers for the end of the end Brubaker one. It ends with him assuming leadership at the hand. Um, and Dee Dee is having problems running it as he has to get all his men in line with his style of justice. There's like issues where like the hands are cutting off people's arms and legs. And Daredevil's like, no, don't do that. We don't kill. Um, and he's in like Japan kind of like picture like the summit. And he's like meeting with all these other faction leaders of the hand. And of course, while he's out there, one gets poisoned to try to like take him out. So he's got to go on this chase of like fighting the hand ninjas and hand sorcerers. And he's trying to get this guy, Bakudu, um, to get back and be like, no, I'm on your side. I'm not trying to double cross you. Um, so the whole issue is kind of like this beautifully choreographed chase sequence with Mark and Chiquetta's pencils, which he's inking himself here too. It, he was as good as he is now 10 years ago. It's really, really, really good. Uh, and it ends with uh, Matt like sleeping and Electra appears in a dream um, and like kind of guts him. Um, but he wakes up and, but he still sees that like he's injured somehow. So he doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on. And then, we end with the other hand faction leaders meeting be like, yo, is the, is everything in place for the final, for the final act? And uh, it's white tiger. Who's there. Who was like kind of Matt's head Lieutenant in New York and uh, saying, yeah, yeah, everything's good. So she's the double cross uh, person on Matt Murdoch. Yeah. Uh, I think the Andy Diggle run gets, I, I think it gets a bad rap because of Shadowland, And it is a lot of how much of it, but he did write reborn, which set up the Mark Wade stuff. Uh, it as far as like the look of it goes, inside interior is beautiful. Uh, though we are at the point of the run where it's really setting up Shadowland and not the beginning part of it. So, Vince, sorry, <laughs> I ended up getting you to read lead in Shadowland Daredevil stuff because I thought yeah. this was a little before that too. Yeah, I was promised this was not connected to Shadowland. Like I, I know how the Brubaker run ends, but the way that it ends and knowing that Shadowland is coming up, like. Even if you say like the beginning chunk, like those first couple issues are different and separate, like in my head, it's like it's really not at all because it's all within the status quo of Matt being in charge of the hand, and it's just not, uh, you know. I mean, uh, it continued the, the the thing was when Bendis left the book, he he left Brubaker with Matt in jail, and he went, "You figure it out." And uh, it, the the kind of the thing was cr then you know carried on by Ed where he went, all right, he's the leader of the hand. Andy Diggle, you figure it out. Um, and you know, this big event happened, and I, I, I feel like the run gets better. Like The Daredevil issues that tied into Shadowland are so much better than the actual Shadowland issues. It, it's a very weird event. I mean, it, it does a lot of damage, definitely, but I mean, if we don't get that, we don't kind of get the, the rebirth, fresher feel take from Wade and Sammy. So, I mean, take what you want, but like this is... Like the title isn't as good as it was under Bendis and then Brubaker, but it's still like good. It was still one of the more premier Marvel books at that point, yeah. kind of carrying on from that volume two of the relaunch where it was kind of solid throughout. Uh, I'll say Chichetto's art is really great. Electra looks very nice in her brief appearance. And yeah. actually I will quickly throw back to a previous issue that we talked about and make a connection here is that you said how Chichetto, he's pretty much fully formed or he, he knows what he's doing here and there's not a drastic style evolution. And I'm going to contrast that with, with Black Widow, which I forgot to delve into a bit, where Daniel Acuna, he had a very, uh, not like a, 
he had a gradual and he was he was good at the beginning but his style evolved quite a bit i mean looking as black widow compared to say when he did captain america with nick spencer there's there's quite a difference and even he was probably doing some green lantern stuff kind of around this era i'm not sure when that was in the big release, uh, I remember the, the build-up to this book was huge because it was the first time Flash got a book in quite a while. And it's uh, the Flash number one, Jeff Johns, Francis Manipal, and uh, Barry Allen is back in his role as Central City's leading forensic scientist, and he's getting reaccumulated to the city of Central City. And he's, you know, he's recently re returned from the dead, but that was in Final Crisis, and then, you know, Flash Rebirth happened, and then Blackest Night happened, so, like, we got to get through all of that, and now he gets his ongoing series. Um, and this is, like I said, who's carrying the brightest day banner. It's looped into that family of books. And opening the book is some great narration by Iris, like setting the tone of Central City, um, that it doesn't stop. It's a constantly moving city. And if you're in this city, you got to be constantly on the go. And she's ordering like her third coffee by like eight in the morning with like a triple shot espresso. So Iris's heart's going to blow up. But a great sequence of barry is the flash coming up behind her and stopping the trickster's joyride through the city and then just another great shot of the flash saving a child and asking his name which is like a classic flash staple this issue is like okay here's francis manipal and here's going to be the defining look of this character for the next decade because oh it's it, it was good then and it's still so good now um barry allen's informed by the department that he sees an uptick um in crime numbers and the Flash's absence and the rogues are still out there because of the Flash's absence. So the favorite gag, by the way, in this being that the weather wizard has rained out every ball game the last two weeks just because. That's amazing just because of how like petty and funny that is uh, in terms of an evil villain. And uh, the department is stressing quantity over quality and solving open cases is top priority. Um, but if Barry Allen can you know solve these cases fast enough and get things moving, he'll have time to kind of dive into all the cold case files that are still in Central City. So that's setting up what Barry Allen's kind of role as the forensic scientist here is going to be. And we get on his way to uh, dinner. He's stopped by Commander Cold and the and like these future rogues saying that he killed Miramonor because the uh, police department figures out like there's this guy lying dead in the street that looks like Miramaster. Um, and we think it's Mirror Master, but Barry goes out there and determines it's not. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't get to make that dinner. And we're already thrown into some crazy time travel stuff with the Flash, uh, with Commander Cold. I, I forget what these guys were called. Um, but this is all setting up, which would be the second arc of this would be uh, Road to Flashpoint. The first arc is Dastard Death of the Rogues. That's the first part of this. Um, but at the end of the issue... It's it's already setting it up. It's like coming soon, flashpoint, and it's like oh, the the end of what I like is is quickly happening, and I forgot that the uh, the tease for that is in the very first issue of this. But I don't think you can have a more perfectly told first issue setting up everything what your series is going to do by reintroducing this character back into a universe that has not like seen a prevalent version of them. For a while, like I said, Flash didn't have an ongoing series for a little bit, which is kind of crazy at DC. But this is kind of the the part where Green Lantern was kind of that rotating fourth pillar, and now it's the Flash's time here. Um, and that's what Jeff Johns and and Francis Manipal set out to do. Manipal, obviously, with Brian Brusello, um, 
came out to do the flashbook of the new 52 but that this is kind of the start of that of that defining look that we're that we're gonna see still today with the character also to note no crazy lines in the suit yet it looks perfect should stay this way but we can't always have nice things yeah this is a great first issue the opening is amazing john's and, and manipul just perfectly in sync you very very well show off the flash's powers you get a really great feat you get a touch of his relationship with iris his relationship with central city and kind of the character of the city and you get that inspirational aspect where the connection to a little kid and saving him um yeah and then just the series as a whole there's so much complicated behind the scenes and you know what came after it and everything like that like even before flashpoint like this series got cut seemingly got cut short an issue like they initially solicited an, another issue and then they're just like oh, we're not going to do that and there were so many things and you talk about how flash was kind of we thought that jeff johns was building flash as the next pillar um, you know, was going to make it as big of a thing as Green Lantern. And he was on that path. You know, he did Flash Rebirth with Ethan Van Skyver after the two had done Green Lantern Rebirth years before and then launched the ongoing and everything like that. But, of course, Green Lantern at this time had three ongoing titles. So it's like, when does the Flash get the spinoff? And then what happens with Wally? And And all those things were discussed in the press at conventions, and it just never... It never happened, but that a lot of that is discussion for another day. Manipul's art here is is fucking perfect for the character, especially in this era. Like you said, for the decade, and yeah, I would say, like since I guess you know Johns ended his wall his run with Wally, which at this point was several years before this, like at least maybe five years before. I think um, it's at like least like three or five years where the Flash hasn't had an ongoing book. Well, it's a little it's a little more complicated than that, but. Because there was a lot of like kind of the, the Wally West series kind of ended with a whimper. And then there's the the Bart Allen Fastest Man Alive series in the middle. And then they bring back Wally, but then it gets canceled. And it's very strange where you actually, if you look at it from like from like Infinite Crisis through the New 52, if you you know, if you really get down in the dirt, there's like a flash relaunch essentially like every single year for like five years in a row because you had different miniseries like Rebirth, like the Final Crisis tie-in, things like that. But um, Manipul's art is perfect. I feel like, and I haven't flipped through the new two issues super recently, but I'm just going to throw this out there and I might be totally wrong, but I feel like this volume uh, with Jeff Johns, Premium New 52, I feel like the art from Manipul has a bit of a softer touch. It's almost like a colored pencil like almost like a colored pencil kind of aesthetic and then when you get in the new 52 it becomes a little bit more shiny looking and a little bit more like digital color like a little bit more traditional house style and i'm not really sure which one i prefer they both look really cool but i think there's a little bit of a slight difference as the kind of era evolves and his manipul slightly a- slightly changes and when you get to when when you get to the new 52 series that's when manipul starts going like just full out crazy with the page layouts, incorporating the logos yeah. in there and stuff. There's a little bit of that in here, but like definitely, definitely pick this up. But I, I mean, I don't think I'm being like hiding it. Like this is the pick of the week for me. Like it was still good back then. It's still great now. And then as far as Jeff John's nostalgia wanking, I want to point out that 
he teases a setup for Patty Spivet here, who I do believe shows up um, as the series goes on and then yeah. shows up in the new 52 run and shows up on the TV show. But at this point, she hadn't been seen since the Bronze Age, which, I mean, makes sense because Barry hasn't either. So any Barry supporting characters that you're going to pull in, they're going to be from that. But it, it's still interesting to point out. Guardian of the Galaxy number 25 written by Dan Abnett, Andy Lanning, and art by Brad Walker. This is the final issue of the series. Both Guardians and Nova, which ran 36 issues, uh, feed into Thanos Imperative. And of course, they came out of things like Annihilation, Annihilation Conquest, tied into uh, Realm of Kings, etc. This opens with the future Guardians, so that's Starhawk and company, debating about timeline bullshit for several pages. And this stuff is actually pretty boring, especially if you, you're not, you know, binging this whole thing in a row and not super invested in the kind of overall lore of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Then the Guardians that we know, the Guardians that the people know from the movies and everything, arrive on a planet that's fucked up. And it's actually the planet that is home to the Universal Church of Truth, which are the golden people in Guardians 2. And... Turns out they were trying to resurrect Thanos and they accomplished it, but he's like half zombie, half really, really mad. So he just like killed all of them and destroyed the planet. And the Guardians run into their missing teammates who they have presumed may have been dead. And that includes Gamora, Mantis, Major Victory, and Cosmo. While Phyla Vell was killed by Thanos. And uh, Adam Warlock, whatever weird form he was in at this time, was also killed by Thanos or just killed in general, I think, before this. Uh, but Philovel being dead makes Moondragon very, very mad because they are uh, dating each other at this point. And so she attacks Thanos, and they fight Thanos for a bit, and he's naked and zombie-like and very mad, so it's, it's a tough battle. But Peter Quill has had a cosmic cube just hanging out in his back pocket, so he rips it out and basically uses the brunt of the force of it on Thanos, which shocks Thanos to full consciousness. And then once he's out of his kind of like half dead state, then the telepaths can knock him out. And that's just how the series ends. But obviously, and it is, does tease explicitly, you really have to read Thanos Imperative after this issue. You can't, I mean, this run as a whole, as a 25 issues, it's, it's pretty fun, it's pretty satisfying. And I don't think you necessarily have to read every damn thing like that Marvel has put in these five big omnibuses to, you know, enjoy different aspects of this era of Cosmic Marvel. Like, you can definitely go Guardians only or Nova only, but you really have to read Thanos Imperative at the end. But it's strong. It's, it's pretty, I mean, as a standalone issue, it doesn't stand out like this crazy awesome thing, but it really is that cumulative thing and, and how certain editors and writers, primarily Abda and Lanning, um, and some of the groundwork laid by Keith Giffen early on, it, it's all about how they built up this corner of the Marvel Universe. And it was big enough of a corner that they had several titles and there were events specific to it and everything. So there was a lot of connection, but it also felt separate from everything else. And... Overall, this is one of my favorite parts of the modern era of Marvel. But this issue by itself, not a great, obviously not a great entry point and not even really a great showcase for that. 
You know what was also like not great at showcasing kind of the end of the year? It's our next book, which is New Avengers Finale. I I had not read this until this week. Uh, I think Vince. I don't know if you want to stay on double screen or not here because I'm going to mention it. For us, when we were growing up, we didn't have an Avengers book proper until like 2010, kind of. Well, I know you were. We we had Avengers disassembled, and then we had New Avengers. That was our book for Avengers and then Mighty Avengers and then Dark Avengers as Bendis was at the helm of the Marvel Universe for this time. So this is the finale and this is the culmination of quite a long series of issues, which I, I never read the ending. So it was kind of like fun because I remember my uncle had all of New Avengers up until I think right around when Dark Reign was starting. And I borrowed them and I read them like in a week all through the summer. Uh, so I loved New Avengers when I was younger. Um, looking back on it, I think it's good, but you have to realize that New Avengers is more so uh, and this is take on Justice League than anything else because the Avengers is not always the big guns. It uh, <laughs> While Bendis threw like every big name in the Marvel Universe on it, like the Justice League. And to me, looking back at classic Avengers stories I, in Justice League stories, I feel like New Avengers is more Justice League-esque than classic Avengers. That's beside the point. This is the culmination of that, and then eventually in 2010, we get the relaunched Avengers with Bendis still at the helm, and then uh, John Rita Jr. drawing. Um, but then, you, so you think the New Avengers banner's over. Um, it's Madame Mask and her father, Count Nefaria. She's asking him for help as her boyfriend, Parker Robbins, to try to like get out because siege happened. And they all the villains just got defeated. And the new Avengers get word of that while they're like cleaning up Asgard. And they know that the Hood and Nefaria are trying to make a power play from the, the Hood's gang while like they were cleaning them up. So they kidnap, I think, like the Hood's cousin or something. <laughs> and uh they, he sells them out quickly. So Luke Cage and the Avengers, they they quickly dispatch Count Nefaria. They they completely just beat him down. We get some cool stuff with uh with Carol, who's still Ms. Marvel at this point. Real, um, pointing out that she can actually absorb power, so she just takes all of Nefarious powers and just hits it back right out. And that was pretty cool. And then Steve Rogers, who returned as Captain America, but quickly just he still let Bucky keep the shield. And he's like, I'm the new top cop. By the way, no more super, super superhero registration act. That's gone. You guys are reinstated. You don't have to be on the run anymore. Uh, welcome to the heroic age. So it, it it's weird. Like, and then like the ending is uh, Luke Cage taking narration, looking back at all the events that happened under this kind of time. And yeah, it kind of works, but like it, it would have been cooler if the next kind of thing of Avengers actually started with Luke Cage leading the team. But instead we got Avengers and then new Avengers and secret Avengers. This is the point where we, we can't have a team book without the word Avengers in it because we're scared it won't sell. So that's, it's kind of a bittersweet kind of looking at it to me for how, how that goes because uh, this was the book where Luke Cage really kind of was being put in as like a big tier hero in the Marvel Universe uh, which I think Bendis did a really really great job with that but uh, instead he's relegated to being the leader of the new Avengers that they, they buy the mansion from Tony Stark that happens later this just ends with them all walking in the park but like I, I thought Brian Hitch's pencils were kind of messy and muggy like there was a lot of landscape shots, a lot of double page uh, landscape splashes, which are, are fine. But like, I think his work with uh, 
Kevin Nolan in the, the Batman's grave has been a much, much better return to form for him than this is it just kind of looks muggy and muted and messy. Yeah, it, it was. And then it's like also in my head, like I feel like Bendis has written this issue before. Cause like defenders ends with them going after the hood. And I think one other thing and like the hood parts of new Avengers I don't know why they tried to make the hood like the big bad of the Marvel universe for so long, but I, I didn't care then. I don't care there. I'll never care about the hood. He's so lame and just never comes across as an actual threat ever. (laughs) So for them to go out the hood, I wish this was like the last time he would be like in the forefront, but no, it wasn't just when he thought it was over he would still come to haunt me for, for many, many years after that. Um, Vince, I didn't, I know you didn't read this this week. You may have read it in the past. Any comments on this at all or just moving right along? I mean, this specific I mean, this issue... Is... Ooh, never mind. I had an AFCO for a minute. This specific issue not really did not reread it. I read it before. I have very mixed feelings on New Avengers, the entire Bendis era of Avengers. But this is pretty much... It is a turning point because I like everything before this a lot more than everything after this. No, same. The, the events of this era, basically, where you have you have uh, disassembled Secret War, House of M, Civil War, Secret Invasion, Siege. I guess that's it. Those, even though you know, in this, you know, in isolation, some of those are weak. I find those a lot better than what follows, which is like, you know, I don't even know the order, you know, Fear uh, Itself, ABX. Next one. Um, I just, the events got more, more, they felt at least more forced. And maybe that was just me getting older and more jaded. They felt more forced, less connected to kind of the Avengers titles, less connected to the spinal Marvel Universe, uh, more gimmicky, more overbloated, even though, I don't know that that was true either. And everything got more and more fractured, more and more spread out. I mean, Bendis, for a bit, for a good chunk, it was just New Avengers. And then you had a, a clear premise for this is why Mighty Avengers is different from New Avengers. And this is why Dark Avengers is the thing. But then you get into an era where it's just like, we've got 25 Avengers characters and we want them all in books. So let's make five ongoing series with tangentially different premises, like Secret Avengers. There you go, like you know, Avengers AI, and then it it, it get gets worse and worse, even when Bendis gets off. But the this era where it gets where New Avengers and Avengers get relaunched in the heroic age, it's kind of where I check out of Bendis Avengers. Yeah, um, and I don't know, it's just complicated. Is it an Avengers book? Is it good? You know, what? A- everything Bendis did is complicated to me. And of course, he was, you know, in charge of multiple corners of Marvel Universe for like 20 years. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, when I was, you know, growing up and, and getting into current comics and everything like that. Now, something very strange, pun intended Spider Man Fever number one, writ. Uh, writing and art, and also some portion of letters and colors, even by Brendan McCarthy. Even though there there are other people doing some other portion of some of those skills, McCarthy has done very few big two projects. He's done like a fill in a shade, the Changing Man, 
did a couple issues of the most recent, like teenage Arabic, Dr. Fate version, things like that. Um, but I would say this is kind of his big, this is his biggest thing on the stage for the big two. He is from Britain, came up, kind of came up with Peter Milligan. They did a lot of collaborations together. And he is on record as being a huge Ditko fan. So this is kind of potentially within the confines of the big two, his dream project where it's called Spider-Man Fever, but it's ultimately a lot of Doctor Strange here as well. So those are the two Steve Ditko major collaborations in the Silver Age with Stan Lee. Spidey, he's fighting the vulture. He gets sprayed by like Raid, but it makes him really trippy. And he crashes, he gets away from the vulture and crashes in a bathtub in some random building. And it turns out it's in the Sanctum Sanctorum owned by Doctor Strange. While Strange is dealing with a booby trap book he bought. And I, you see this every once in a while. It's not like this is not a thing that has been tapped into. But I really love the idea of Doctor Strange as a collector. And, and especially like a book collector, obviously, because there's parallels with comic books and comic book collecting and everything like that. Um, but it definitely makes sense. And, and you could engineer a whole run around that. Like that would be a, that would be an easy premise. Like, you know, each arc he's has to research or find or collect a certain artifact or book or things like that, and then deal with the consequences around it and everything. And the book that he has bought, which is delivered basically by USPS is written by an old occultist who ran into spider demons and Dr. Strange, after kind of figuring all this out and then dealing with some curses on the book, walks into his bathroom to catch a spider demon with a funny hat trying to eat Spider-Man's soul while Spidey is just tripping in the bathtub. And Strange tries to deal with it, but he gets away. And the spider takes Spider-Man's soul, which is like all green and purple instead of red and blue, to the spider insect king in like this weird dimension who wants to eat it with custard. And that's pretty much it. This is, you know, I'm not necessarily gonna give this to someone for their first Spider-Man or Doctor Strange story, but it's a lot of fun and the, and the visuals, that's really what you're coming for here and they're just off the wall. I think it's funny that McCarthy is such a big fan of Ditko and then this is how he channels that because the joke was always that Doctor Strange you know, it looked like Doctor Strange was inspired by psychedelia, inspired by drugs. It looked like maybe Ditko and Lee were doing drugs. But the both of them, and especially Ditko, if you know anything about his politics and his personal views, were square as hell. Um, despite the fact that, you know, all these college students were getting into these characters. But that is not the case for McCarthy, who does have a real genuine love for Ditko, but he definitely does have those psychedelic those direct psychedelic influences. I, I I thought this was kind of balls of the walls crazy. Uh, Brandon McCarthy's art was amazing to me. Uh, channeling that Ditko uh, kind of look and vibe for Spider-Man and then like the crazy page layouts and kind of environments with the backgrounds. I didn't know what this was going to be and I was happy you picked it because I actually came out of this really, really liking it. Yeah, this was kind of a curveball that I threw in there, even though it's called, a, even though it's a Spider-Man book. And I believe also what I didn't mention is this is a Marvel Knights book, which is kind of how they started using, I mean, Marvel Knights essentially died around like the mid 2000s yeah. when all the books were folded back into the main universe. Um, I mean, some of them may have still kept the branding, but uh, very originally, like all of Marvel Knights is totally canon. 
to a certain point from the beginning. But in the beginning, you kind of had this idea that it definitely were, it definitely was a totally different group of people working on these books. And those characters were similar in tone, but different from the main universe. So there was a totally different connection. But as you had people like Bendis taking over everything, then, and that's just part of it, but they, they folded it all in and eventually just knocked off the logos because there was no point. Um, and a lot of the books ended, obviously. Um, and so then you basically would have Marvel a couple waves. They would attempt to bring back Marvel Knights as a concept in some form. And it's basically for stuff like this, where you have things where continuity is very iffy and creators that are very creator-driven kind of indie takes on characters. And there's a few examples, and, and a lot of them, honestly, a lot of those kind of later Marvel Knights attempts, most, almost all of them are miniseries. A lot of them actually suck, but this is kind of one of the weird successes. And I think it's fitting we had this because I know 2019 kind of overlapped 2020. We had uh, we were celebrating the 20th anniversary of Marvel Knights, so I think this kind of works. Yeah. All right. The Spirit, number one. This is DC's second take on the Spirit. The first series was initially written and drawn by Darwin Cook. And that one lasted quite a while, even though Cook was only on it for about a year. But this is a relaunch, and this is a relaunch surrounding the first wave event, which was a kind of crossover slash publishing initiative where DC was trying to angle a lot of these kind of pulp era characters that inspired some of the superheroes as well as some of the superheroes like Batman and Black Canary were involved and kind of integrated them with the DC universe, but not at all, like set up a separate continuity. I don't fully understand first wave. I don't think it worked. I don't know that it could have worked. Um, at least, you know, I don't know that it could have worked if you also wanted to include Batman, which is what they tried. But this issue written by Mark Schultz, art by Moritat, and definitely worth noting the cover by Jose Ladrone. Schultz is primarily known as a writer artist. His 80s, 90s series called Xenozoic Tales, which is more widely known through adaptations, um, like an animated TV show, toys and stuff, and then its own tie in comic books as Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. But he's done writing for DC and Dark Horse through the years. He had a run on Man of Steel after Louise Simonson left that book, which she set up. He wrote that Superman title from 1999 to 2003, primarily with Doug Mankey drawing it. And he's also written some Aliens, some Predator, some Star Wars. So the issue here, Spirit uses one of his aliases to get tips from the folks in the neighborhood. And then he meets up with his analog of Commissioner Gordon to get more tips. And it turns out that the octopus who was kind of like Spirit's arch nemesis, but as far as I know, you never really saw him in the original Will Eisner stories. He has put out, an, he's hired an assassin to take down the Spirit. And of course, the, and the assassin's all hyped up as this big threatening deal. And of course, it's a sexy femme fatale in the tradition of the Spirit. The story, it's really just fine. The Moritat art, it's kind of in a weird place. Um, I like some of his later stuff a bit more, or maybe his earlier stuff. I'm not really sure, but I'm blaming a lot of that on the coloring, which to me, I feel was very muddy. There are moments where 
Moritat leans into the cartooniness, and that's actually where I like him better. But other times where it's less cartoony, where it's like the alley scenes or it's raining, it kind of is honestly gross. Um, like the faces, the facial expressions, and just the overall art. But I think a lot of that is the coloring. And then there is also a backup. And this is also the era where DC was running backups in a lot of their series. Um, the Superman, the like action comics would have a backup, things like that. And for this, they decided to kind of riff on the Batman black and white concept and do a spirit black and white with interesting creative teams. And this one is Dennis O'Neill and Bill Sienkiewicz. And Bill Sienkiewicz in black and white, it's super loose, it's sketchy, almost the whole story is in the rain. And it's also like, you know, New York slums. So this is really top tier unbridled Sienkiewicz for better or worse, depends on your taste. I really love it in this context. And I don't have much more to say on the story. Like it, it's pretty, it's like an eight page, pretty nonsense story, but you're, you're there for Sienkiewicz. And obviously O'Neill is, you know, he has, he's good in the role. And other black and white creative teams on this spirit backup, which I think are worth noting and to tease, to track down some issues, you had Harlan Ellison and Kyle Baker, David Laffam and Mike Kaluta, Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Riso. That's a classic combination. Jan Sternod and Richard Corbin, Walt Simonson and Jordi Vernay, Paul Dini and Mike Plug, Howard Chaikin and Brian Boland, Paul Levitz and Jose Luis Garcia, and there were a few more as well. And the final issue, which I think is number 17, is all black and white, like these stories. There were like three of them instead of a instead of a main story. So that's the spirit. Honestly, I thought it was just fine. If not, like not even something I liked, but it was interesting to check out. Yeah, I, I wasn't really feeling this. It was the first actual comic of the spirit I've read, which is you're going to laugh at this because like I know of the movie. I've seen the movie. And uh, I don't understand that. And well, uh, not, I think not, a, not a good movie. Not, it's not a good movie. <laughs> um, and um, I'll, so he's like a detective, but he died, but he came back and just no one knows who he is from wearing this simple domino mask. Is that the deal? Yeah, essentially. I mean, it's, it's just like a superhero. It's like Batman, but without Bruce Wayne at all. Okay. But he's always, so like, he just wanders the streets and he like during the daytime and he's just the spirit all the time. Okay. All right. It took me a while to figure that out. Like I thought he had a secret identity and thought people, he still thought some people know who he is, but like, yeah, this was like fine. I, I, I agree with you. I prefer the Mortad art when it's more cartoony. I, I felt the, the Bill Sienkiewicz backups were, it was a pretty rough for me as I couldn't tell a lot what was going on a lot of the time as I think you really need to like, like either color to really kind of show exactly what I'm supposed to be looking at. I think some of the times I was like, what's going on here a little bit, but yeah, it was fine. First wave is weird as I, I don't even think, yeah, the doc Savage book never, never happened. Right. Um, I'm not sure. It was and, and the Batman book never happened. We, we got that first wave Batman, Dr. Strange. I'm sorry, not Batman, doc Savage one shot. It tried to set up this like little imprint and then we got this and that was pretty much it. Yeah. It's another thing that kind of didn't, I mean, this series runs 17 issues, so there was enough of a runway there, but it never like 
it didn't really accomplish what they wanted it to. And I'll actually parallel that with something we didn't read at all, and which was probably already dead at this point, is around this same era, DC also attempted another take on licensing the Archie characters, the Archie superheroes. That's right. Um, and I don't think there was crossover with the DC universe with those, but they had a little imprint. Um, and in fact, Art Germ, that's kind of where he started was he did a, covers for a lot of those titles. And that died, this died. And then I think going into New 52, they, you know, they, they didn't try any of this kind of stuff. They let those licenses lapse. The spirit went to Dynamite, I guess. Um, all the Archie characters obviously just went back to Archie. I don't think anyone has Doc Savage anymore. I think he's free. He's up for grabs right now. Well, he's... I don't remember. It's kind of complicated. Doc Savage, I believe, is kind of the same package of the sh as the Shadow. But maybe not, because that makes me question why DC wasn't using the Shadow at, right. in this. But... Maybe they're just owned by the same people, but obviously they license them separately. I don't know. I know that we were supposed to get that Doc Savage movie with The Rock that never happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're supposed to get a $6 million man with Mark Wahlberg. That's not happening. Well, all right. This is our final book for this week. Velocity number one, written by Ron Mars, art by Kenneth Rockefort. So Velocity is a speedster from Mark Silvestri's Cyberforce which was one of the image launch titles in 1992. It was like a team book, basically a ripoff of X-Men type of books, but they're all kind of cybernetically enhanced to get their powers. Velocity is the younger sister of one of the other characters, and she's also the youngest on the team. So she kind of filled that, that teenage young gun role. And from 2007 to 2011, Top Cow had a program called Pilot Season where every year half dozen one-shots would be released, either starring existing characters from Top Cow or original indie concepts. And then fans would vote for which one or two would be expanded into a full series. It's kind of like a television pilot, except for the ones that didn't continue or that one year when Robert Liefeld wrote every single pilot season issue. But the two indie series of note that came out of that were Genius, and the beauty which you know they're not huge names either but one of the most acclaimed of the very first pilot season year was velocity but that one was done by joe casey and kevin mcguire then it was going to be crisscross on art instead of mcguire but somehow a couple of years later we're here with a totally different creative team very loosely picking up on some of that characterization and plot points the actual issue here gets you up on some of that backstory a uh, recent backstory of the character and also her origins and connection to Cyberforce. She likes movies. She's a little quirky. She's still young. And a creepy cyborg ab abducts her, basically using like sentinel kind of things. And he's mad because he was involved with the cybernetics research, which got all of them their, their powers. And he used it on himself, but he didn't get flashy powers like them. So he's butthurt and has infected her and all of her teammates with a virus that will kill them in 60 seconds. But she uses her secondary mutation, essentially, to help her escape. And so now she's on the clock. She's got an hour to save the day, save herself, save her teammates and her sister through the rest of this miniseries. 
So this issue really is all set up. Um, there's lots of flashback, exposition, character development, and setting up the story, and then you'll get into the story. Um, the Rock of Fort, I think his art fits a, a character with speedster powers really well, though the final page is pretty skeevy, um, which is kind of in the, you know, that's kind of in the vein of Top Cow. The scripting from Ron Mars is fine. I mean, he does a teenage hero all right. He's plenty experienced by this era. He weaves in the exposition just fine. He's also very at home here in the Top Cow universe because this is published around the same time as Witchblade number 136 for reference, which is during his fan favorite run on that character, which goes from issue 80 to 150. So he's kind of nearing towards the end, but then he has more stuff after that. So this is still kind of in the kind of the second, maybe like the third golden age of Top Cow, because you have the very, very early launch of image stuff with Cyberforce. Then you have the late, late 90s kind of bad girls explosion and the launch of both uh, Witchblade, the Darkness, Tomb Raider. And then you have this era where it's Ron Mars and Stefan Sedgwick kind of in charge of everything. So that's that. Um, Mike did attempt to read Velocity. Attempt? I mean, I finished it. It, it, it yeah. was a comic book, certainly. Uh, it was all right. Um, I, when it, comparing this to The Flash number one, I, I prefer The Flash. Um, I've never been a big Kenneth Rockefort fan, so I think some, I think it, some of the stuff with Superman looked good, and I think sometimes it looks like... It, I think it depends on who's inking him, because sometimes it looks like messy, and then sometimes it looks like, all right, there's lines on your characters. I can see where they are. I think it was interesting to read the, this alongside the Flash, though, um, to kind of show the different visual ways that you can convey these kinds of powers and things like that, uh, both the commonalities and the differences. And I think both Manipul and, I mean, I think Rockfort fits his speedster very well. I think he, it, like, if he were to draw the Flash, I would take that over the work he did on Superman. He just has that kind of kinetic style. I would like to see Kenneth Rockfort try a speedball story. That would be interesting. Well, you're not getting that book anytime soon. No. All right, that is that. My pick of the week, I'm going to go... I'm. A, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to not, so I'm going to go with Flash. Yeah, that I, I already said it midway, but yeah, mine's Flash. Like, it, it's... a. It's a perfect first issue. Yeah, I mean, everything else, there's highlights. I, I think this was a pretty great selection of books overall uh, this week, and I managed to read almost every single one, so it was a good crop. Um, but walk down memory lane. Most of them kind of have a, a small asterisk or, or something about them except for Flash, which granted also has a huge asterisk, but I don't think the issue itself is affected that much. No, no. I think it, it, it's really past issue six that the, the seeds of Flashpoint are really beginning. All right, everyone. Thanks for watching. I believe, unless you know, there's another huge wrench and everything changes again, this is our last attempt at this retro format, at least for the moment. And next week, we're going to try, should we say? Like uh, let's keep it a secret. Okay, it's a secret format change for the next month or so. Bye-bye.